morning, New Life. How we doing out there? Hope that you're all doing well on this glorious, beautiful August Sunday morning. It's good to be with you in this context, wherever you may be joining us from. If you are new or visiting, so maybe this is your first time tuning in, maybe second, third time, uh, welcome. My name's Chris, and I uh, want to invite you, if you have a Bible at home on a device or maybe in print, to go ahead and open that up and head for 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to uh, really dig into verses 7 through uh, 11 in a second. And as you find your place in 1 Peter 4, I want to ask you a question. If you knew that the world would end in precisely 24 hours, right? So it's, it's about 10.18 on Sunday morning. So if you knew at 10.18 tomorrow morning, mon- Monday morning, that the world would end, here's the question. How would you spend your last day on planet Earth? Like how, how would you, if you just had 24 hours and, and you knew that it was coming, how, how would you spend that last precious day of your life on planet Earth? Now, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and bet that your last day would probably be one of the best lived days of your entire life. Like, I, I just bet you, for most of you, if you knew you had 24 hours left, man, I bet you would love those around you better. I'm I'm gonna bet that you would be kinder to those around you. I'm gonna bet you would probably call that old uh, a friend or or family member that you've kind of had a grudge against since 1987 or what. I bet you would call them and and work that out. Bet you would say, I I love you more to the people that you actually love in your life. Heck, I, I I bet some of you would call that that friend that you've been wanting to tell about Jesus, but you've just been kind of nervous about it, a little scared. Man, I bet if you knew you had 24 hours, you'd get on the phone. Or you'd call him and say, let's go grab coffee. And say, Man, let me, let me tell you about Jesus. I'm just willing to bet that your last day on earth, if you knew that you only had 24 hours left, would probably be the most incredible, most effective day of your entire life. And if that's true for you, and I'm guessing that for the majority of you that actually is true, why is that? I'd argue it's because knowing that the end is near tends to uh, enliven within us this sense of urgency in life. I mean, we see this in sports all the time, right? If you watch watch football like like I do, uh, oftentimes when you get to the fourth quarter of a football game, what do you see all the football players do, man? They kind of hold four fingers up in the air and they kind of walk around holding up four fingers right before the fourth quarter starts. So why are they doing that? They're, they're saying, in essence, the end is near, it's go time, right? We're, we're, we're about to ball out. We're about to give our best effort. We're about to play the best we've played all game long because we know it's the fourth quarter. The end is near. We're, we're getting ready to, to really give it our best this last quarter of the game. Or in, in boxing or uh, MMA fights, there's always a, a 10-second warning at the end of every round. You just kind of hear Right? And what that, little, what that little 10 second warning does is it lets the fighters know, hey, it's go time, baby. This, this round is about over. It's time to, to give it your best shot. It's almost over. Give it your all. And that's really what we're going to see Peter do in this passage today. He's going to say to us, hey, believer, the end is near. I know you don't, maybe you don't feel like it's near, or maybe you do feel like it's near. I don't know. But in either case, Jesus is coming back again, is what Peter's saying. It's going to happen, 
As sure as he came the first time, he is surely coming again. The second time, just as he promised that he would do. And in light of that, Peter's saying, we ought to, as his disciples, live in a certain way. We ought to live in a certain way. So he's going to give us four characteristics, four action steps in this text that should mark our lives as followers of Jesus in the last days. Now, I've had several people ask me, especially, I think, since 2020. By the way, could 2020 get any crazier? There's an earthquake, I'm told, 8.03 this morning. I didn't even feel it, but I was getting text messages on my Facebook feed. Tons of you guys heard. It's like, I think I read already, it's like the, the largest earthquake in North Carolina or Western North Carolina since 1918 or something crazy like that. So could 2020 get any crazier? But because this year has been so unusual in so many ways, I've had people email me and just ask me the question and say, hey, Chris, do you, do you think we're living in the last days? Like, is this all a precursor to the, the, the sky splitting open and Jesus coming back? Like, is, are, we, are we about there? And I always have to kind of break up my answer in, into a couple different parts. Uh, so first I would say, just in a biblical sense, yeah. Yeah, the, the last days as the scriptures describe them, the last days as the New Testament writers seem to understand them are the days between the first and second coming of Jesus. So, so, so yes, right, we, we are in the last days as God defines these sort of things. Now, does that mean that, that Jesus is coming back tomorrow? Does that mean that he's coming back next week or, or 10 years from now or, or 50 years from now? And the, the honest answer is I, I have no earthly idea. I have no idea. And, and I would argue that you shouldn't trust anybody who says they do have an idea and they start kind of picking out dates and setting time. I mean, Jesus himself said, nobody knows but the Father. Nobody knows that date but the Father. These movements tend to drift into cult-like movements. So uh, just a word of warning, man, if you start following uh, some of these guys on TV or social media that are, that are date setters, uh, you may find yourself living in the jungle, wearing all white, drinking Kool-Aid one day. So let me just encourage you, don't get sucked into the date-setting stuff. Don't get sucked into the panic and the hysteria of end-time prophets. Jesus actually warns us against those people who would come. Peter is actually telling us that our reaction to the end being near is not panic. That is not to be our reaction to living in the end days. It's not, it's not date setting, like that's not what we should be about as we see the, the end coming nearer and nearer. It, it, our life shouldn't be about uh, building fallout bunkers uh, underground or buying machine guns for the zombie apocalypse. I mean, our reaction, according to Peter, ought to be a certain way of life. It's what I, I would call a, a beautiful life. And Peter's gonna lay out kind of a four-step process for the follower of Jesus to achieve this kind of life in light of the end, in light of the second coming of Jesus, which is just around the bend. All right, so 1 Peter chapter four, we're gonna start in verse seven again. We're just gonna go through verse 11 together this morning. This is what Peter writes to these suffering Christians in Asia Minor. It says this, the end of all things is at hand. So he's talking about the, the end of this age, the coming, second coming of Jesus. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so right, right out of the gate, Peter says, the end is at hand. Therefore, in other words, in light of this truth, we should, we ought to live in a certain way as Christ followers. And so four things Peter's gonna give us 
And he begins this four-step process with a really important one. He says, listen, believer, you need to be self-controlled. You need to be sober-minded. Why, Peter? And he says, for the sake of your prayers. He's saying, he's saying Christian, don't, don't lose your head in these crazy times when the world seems to be uh, spinning out of control and falling apart, when everybody seems to be panicking and just riddled with fear. You keep your cool, believer. Be sober in your mind. Be self-controlled. Don't, don't quit your day job and prep for the zombie apocalypse. Rather, focus on, he's saying, developing a powerful prayer life in these times. Because, ultimately, the only thing that will have sustaining power during the darkest times of life and the most confusing times of life and kind of global pandemic times and seasons of suffering which are sure to come in our life, the only thing that's gonna have holding power in my life or your life is a real and vibrant connection, relationship with your creator. And so step number one to a beautiful life in light of the end, number one, Peter says, here's step number one, Christian, develop a powerful prayer life. Cultivate a powerful prayer life. And as I, as I was studying this week, I was just thinking about how, how Jesus himself modeled this for us so beautifully. I think about it, J Jesus, right, the, the son of God, God man himself, Jesus. And the gospel tells us it was his habit oftentimes to be up before the sun was up out off somewhere in the woods, in the wilderness, by himself, praying, connecting to his Father. In fact, in times of distress and stress in Jesus' life, we look back at the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane, right, and not right before he was crucified. How did Jesus spend his final hours on this earth? In prayer, in communion with his Father. And so let me ask you a question. If the Son of God himself saw prayer as the one thing that he needed most as he saw the end approaching, how much more should we be pursuing and cultivating a strong, dynamic, powerful prayer life as his followers, as we see the end approaching? Now, now look, I'm, I'm not gonna sugarcoat this. I'm gonna be, I've been honest about this in the past. This, this is hard. This is very easy for me to stand up in, in front of you and say we ought to be a people of prayer. We ought to cultivate a powerful, consistent prayer life. But practically, for most of us, myself included, this is a really hard discipline. Right? This is, I've been honest about this before. This is, for, for me, this is one of my greatest struggles. This is one of my greatest, consistent, uh, most weak parts of my spiritual life. And I don't use this as an excuse, but my mind is just, I've always, since I've been a little boy, kind of ADD brain. And so I, it's hard for me to sit down and focus on anything for long periods of time. I, I can hear my phone buzz even in another room and I'm distracted. I can hear my dog bark or my kid yell upstairs. Or Man, I can just remember an email that I, that I haven't responded to yet and now I'm, I'm off course and I'm done for the day. Listen, pray, I understand, prayer can be hard. That's why it's called a spiritual discipline. That's why Peter says here, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, this is gonna require focus 
on your part. This is going to require mental energy on your part, but it's absolutely essential for us to cultivate a powerful prayer life if we want to live out this beautiful life that Peter is describing in light of the end. That's step number one, develop that prayer life, Christian. Step number two, look at uh, verse number eight. It says this, above all, so most important, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter goes, out of this four-step process I'm gonna give you to have a beautiful life, in light of the end, this one is actually the most important one of all. He goes, keep loving one another earnestly because this kind of love actually covers a multitude of sins. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, if you've been tracking along with us in this series, this is actually the fourth time in this little tiny letter where Peter basically says the same exact thing to these suffering believers. Fourth time, one in each chapter, once in chapter one, once in chapter two, once in chapter three, now again in chapter four where he's telling these believers, hey listen, you guys need to love each other. You need to, you need to love each other with a, with a fierce, really deep kind of love. You need to be unified together, one family, one heartbeat. Once each chapter, he's saying the same, man, that is a heavy dose of the same medicine in a really short letter. Why is that? It seems surprising at first, but it's actually not surprising when we remember back to the words of Jesus in John chapter 17, where Jesus turns to his disciples and he basically says, hey, listen, your, your love, guys, your love and your unity with one another will actually be what authenticates my message to the world. Your, your love and your unity t- together as the family of faith, as the disciples of Jesus, is what's actually going to authenticate my message to the watching world. Our love for one another is that important. I also find it fascinating that Peter not only says, hey, Christians, man, you need to love each other. He actually adds the word earnestly. He says, I want you to love each other earnestly. Now that word earnestly in the original language carries this idea of straining, this idea of of, of stretching. Think of an athlete maybe digging deep at the end of a game, at the end of a a race, maybe a a triathlete who's been running and cycling and and swimming for like 12 or 14 straight hours and at the very end of the race, there's not a lot left in the tank, man, but they, they somehow dig deep and they will themselves and they strain their bodies. They earnestly strive towards the finish line. They exhaust themselves to accomplish something great. This is the idea that I think Peter has in mind for us in terms of how we are to love each other. Now, this is a, this is a, a sad illustration, but a couple of years ago, I had a, a buddy call me and say, hey, Chris, we're, we're gonna run a pickup basketball game at a local gym. Why don't you come and, and, and play with us? I thought, yeah, sure, that, what, you know, what could go wrong? Uh, I'm, I was an athlete in high school, I played football and basketball. I jog a couple of days a week. I hit the gym a couple of days a week. Yeah, I'm almost 40, but I'm sure it'll be, it'll be fine. And so I show up at this gym and this buddy invited me to, and it's me and him and, it, and everybody else there is in college. So we're 18, 19 year old young guys at the prime physical peak of their life. And they run like two, two and a half hours of full court basketball. And I was, I was, I was not prepared for that. 
And so I ran with those guys, and I did everything that I could to, to keep up. And, I, man, I'd take time out and go drink my Gatorade and be right back out there. And they just kept running up and down the floor like it was nothing. And I tell you what, man, I got in my car. I came home right before dinner time, and I crashed on the couch, and I didn't move for like two hours. Uh, Cheryl's like, hey, listen, it's, it's, it's dinner time. I'm like, I, I can't. I, I can't come to the table. So I lay there on the couch with my eyes closed. My, my family eats. And finally, Cheryl peers over the couch and peeks down at me. And she's like, are you okay? Like, do I need to call the ambulance? I'm like, listen, don't, just don't talk to me. I just need to, I need to lay here. And finally, after about two hours, I kind of regained a little bit of energy and went back. But listen, I almost died. I, I gave it all I had to play with those college kids. I exhausted myself to run with those college kids. And this is kind of the idea that Peter is giving us. Man, we need to strengthen. We need to strive. We almost need to exhaust ourselves. We need to go above and beyond what we think we're capable of doing to love each other well. Now, why would we love each other in that kind of radical, sacrificial way? And he tells us right here, he says, because this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. It covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is quoting Proverbs 10, 12 here. Just in case you don't have that memorized, this is what Proverbs 10, 12 says. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, but love, on the other hand, covers all offenses. In other words, love is actually the one thing that covers up offenses that have the ability to destroy unity. Now, I, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the church is full of broken, imperfect people who still sin. Church is full of broken, imperfect people who still struggle with sin. Now, I always find it just a little bit amusing when I hear <laughs> critics of the church say something like, man, the, the church is just full of sinners. Man, the, the church is full of hypocrites. And I wanna say, yeah, we... We know, like that. Like that's, that's why we're there. It's because we have an understanding of how messed up we are, of how busted up and broken up and messed up we are, and the fact that we, we need a set, like that, that's why we're there, right? You're, you're not telling us anything we don't already know. We're, we're not Christians because we think we're great and we have it all figured out. We're Christians because we know how broken we are and we have found a great savior in Jesus. Like that, that's why we're Christians. And by the way, I, just, I, wanna, I don't say this, right? Because I don't wanna get in trouble, but I always kind of just wanna say, by the way, we have room for one more busted up, really messed up person. So why don't you come, why don't you come, come hang out with us for a while, right? But because we are imperfect people, who are still broken, who are still in process, we haven't arrived, we're just in process of becoming more like Jesus, this means that, man, we are going to need to have grace with one another. This means that we're gonna need lots of mercy. This, this means that we're gonna have to forgive each other consistently. This means that we're gonna have to overlook offense after offense. We're gonna have to give each other great grace. This is what it means to love in a way that covers a multitude of sins. We learn to overlook offenses. We learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We don't just assume the worst about somebody. We learn to forgive really quickly. And how is it that we can love in this really radical, unnatural way? And it is unnatural, by the way, for people to love this way. 
to cover other people's offenses, to forgive easily, to give great. How is it that we can love this way? The answer is we can love each other in such a radical way because we have been loved in such a radical way. Christian, don't, don't, don't ever forget that just like Paul said, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. God didn't say, hey, listen, get your life all, all cleaned up and cleared up and kind of uncluttered and get all the sin out of your life. And once you get all these things sorted in your life, then you can come to me and I'll accept you. That's the opposite of the gospel. Right? Paul says, no, 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 while you are still a sinner, while you are still walking in darkness, while you are still loving your sin, while you are still an enemy of God, he loved you and rescued you. And did not his love cover a multitude of our sins? Right? As the psalmist says, he has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west for those who love him, called according to his purpose. Listen, our love for one another either makes our message compelling or our lack of love for one another, our lack of unity destroys our message. Those are really the two options. Either our love for one another is an apologetic to the world that what our, our mouths are saying about this glorious king and his incredible kingdom is actually true. Our lives and our love for one another prove that it's true or absolutely destroys the message. Does irreparable harm to our message, to the gospel. Now, this is important. So step number two, in living a beautiful life in light of the end drawing near, Peter would say to us, believer, number two, love each other earnestly. Not half-heartedly, not superficially, not just giving lip service to caring for one another. He says, love each other earnestly. Exhaust your lives in loving one another and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me just say as a way to kind of, kind of brag on you guys, I, I have seen this, especially in the last couple of months since this corona stuff, play out over and over again. Many of you do such an incredible job of caring for one another in practical ways, right? I see it all the time when babies are born, when people are sick or in the hospital. I see how many of you rally around one another and you cook meals for people and you babysit kids and you cut yards and you do all these things. So let me, let me just say, uh, by way of encouragement, great job, keep on keeping on, man. Let's, let's keep loving each other. Let's exhaust our lives in loving one another so that we might cover a multitude of sins and offenses for the great good and glory of our King. That's number two. Number three, look at verse nine. He says, show hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so step number three in living this beautiful life in the end days is this. Number three, I think he's saying, Christian, abound in gracious hospitality. This should just be like a part of our lives. Now, now this was a, a really big deal in, in ancient times, especially for these early Christians for two reasons. First of all, Christian missionaries were traveling all over the known world with this awesome message of a resurrected king, right? They had the gospel. And as they traveled all over the known world, there were not a plethora of hotel choices. 
off every interstate exit, right? These were very hard, long, dangerous journeys. And even if they were lucky enough to come across an inn, oftentimes these inns, if you look at history, were, were kind of dangerous and unsavory places to stay. You really didn't want to stay in these places. And so Christians really had to rely on one another in these days for, for lodging, for, for meals, for medical care as they traveled with the best news in the world. Right? Christians in, in those days would have been accustomed to having other believers in their homes oftentimes, even believers that they didn't even know personally. Right? They were, they were still a family of faith. They were united by their hope and faith in Jesus, and they had to rely on one another. So hospitality, serving one another was just a part of their everyday faith life. The other reason this was absolutely huge back in the ancient world is the first church, the first century church, didn't own buildings like this one. Now, buildings can be a blessing, they can be a, a tool. I'm grateful that we have this building right here that we get to live stream out of, and then at seven o'clock tonight, we're gonna gather right outside on the lawn on our property and have a big worship service, and, and that's awesome. But in the early days, the early Christians didn't have that luxury. And so they met in people's homes, right, for, for what we're doing now, worship, prayer, generosity, baptism, celebrating the Lord's Supper, teaching, preaching, all of that happened in the context of believers' homes, which meant that believers were constantly having others, even large numbers of other people in their homes, which by the way, if you didn't know that, isn't always convenient, is it? <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've ever been a small group or a community group leader, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes Tuesday night or whatever night your group meets rolls around and man, the last thing you wanna do is have 10 people, or in the case of my community group, 12 adults and 400 kids roll up into your house that you just tidied up so that they can wreck it, right? That sometimes that is the last thing that you feel like doing. And so let me, let me pause and just take a moment and say a special thank you to our community group leaders you, you guys have one of the, the toughest gigs, one of the toughest roles in our church family, and I would argue probably the most important one. And so let me, let me just encourage you, man, keep on keeping on, keep doing your thing, keep opening up your home, keep having people in your home. Listen, what you are doing is not something that's kind of like new or modern or something we've just invented as a church. What you're doing is historical, biblical Christianity, that's what, when you have people in your home and you open the word and you break bread together, like, this is not something new that we've invented as a, as a church staff or an elder team. You're doing 2,000 year old biblical historical Christianity, right? Hospitality is a really big deal in the Bible. Let me, let me just say one more thing about hospitality and I'll, I'll shut up about it, we'll move on. This is, I think, in my opinion, I think this is a really needed word for us as American Christians living in the year 2020. And, and, and here's why I think it's especially poignant for, for us as believers in our time, our culture, in our context, because I, I think as, as Western American believers, we, we've sort of bought into this idea that our home is our castle. You, you probably even heard phrases like that, right? Our home is our, our castle, it's our escape, it's our, it's our respite. And, and look, I, I feel that way oftentimes as well. A long day at work and I'm out dealing with all kinds of stuff and man, I wanna come home and it, it does feel like my sanctuary. 
want to come home and just be with my family and turn on some music and eat a good, eat a good meal or something like that. It's kind of my escape from the world. And to some degree, I think that mindset is okay. But here's my question, man. How, how many Americans don't even know their neighbors? How many Americans don't even know their neighbors, much less have had their neighbors over for a meal? I'll take it a step further. How many Christians have never even had a fellow believer from their local congregation, from their local church family in their home before, ever? I would bet a huge percentage of people, even of those who claim to follow Jesus. And it's because we've minimized this idea, this command of hospitality, which was seen by the early church as something that was of primary importance when you were following Jesus. It wasn't a secondary issue or a tertiary. This was a primary issue for those who claimed to love and follow Jesus. They practiced hospitality often, consistently. Listen, church, we have become anemic in our practice and discipline of hospitality. We've become absolutely anemic. And yet what Peter is saying here is that especially as we see the end drawing near, this is something that ought to just be somewhat of a habit for us. It ought to just be like a normal rhythm of our lives. In fact, it's, it's kind of funny what he tacks on at the, the end of that verse. He says, practice hospitality without grumbling. I felt like I was back when I was six years old. My mom and dad told me to clean my room, right? And I'd start grumbling. He's like, Boy, clean your room without grumbling. He's saying, do it and do it with a good attitude. Don't complain about it. Don't, don't whine about having to clean up your house before the small group comes or, or, or tidy things up before that new couple that you just met at church and invited over for a cup of coffee. Man, don't, don't complain. Don't whine about that. So let me just ask you, Christian, how's your hospitality game these days? How's your hospitality game these days? Now, now maybe, maybe it looks a little different in this crazy coronavirus season, right? Maybe it's not so much having people in your home. Maybe it's having people on your back deck, right? Open air, social distance. Maybe, maybe it's cleaning out your backyard so you can have people there, right? Have folks over. Peter's saying, listen, the end is near. Have folks over. Throw some steaks on the grill. <laughs> Make your special guacamole. Have a party with people. Uh, this, is, this is what you, as followers of Jesus, should be doing as the end draws near. Don't panic. Don't dig a bunker. Don't buy machine guns. Have people over for s'mores around the fire pit. That's what you ought to be doing as you see the end drawing near. Talk about Jesus. Talk about his goodness with folks. That, for Cheryl and I, that's one of the things, first things we did when we got that stimulus corona check from the good old government, we went out and bought a fire pit. Right, we put that baby in our backyard and we've had several families over. It's been great. It was just a way for us to invest in our ability to practice biblical hospitality. And so Peter's saying, listen, you see the end drawing near? You love Jesus? Have people in your home. Be hospitable. One more component to this beautiful life as we see the end drawing near. Verse 10. He says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That means he gives us all a variety of different gifts, right? We don't all get the same gift. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. So Peter says, Christian, as you see the day drawing near, make sure that you are using your spiritual gifts to serve one another. Make sure that you're using your spiritual gifts to love and serve one another in the body of Christ. Now, do you, do you know that every single person who becomes a follower of Jesus gets a spirit, at least one spiritual gift that is intended to be used to build up the body of Christ. You can go read in more detail about that in Ephesians chapter four later if you want. This is just kind of God's plan for the church, that every single person in the body is given at least one spiritual gift. And we really function, we really only function well in a healthy way when we're all using our spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ and expand God's kingdom, but there's somehow, the last, I don't know how, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years in the American church, I don't know how long it's been, but there, there's just been kind of this deadly, I feel like, misconception that's seeped into the American church, and it's this idea that there are kind of just a few really spiritually elite people that probably have a spiritual gift, and, and, and so probably like missionaries that move to Africa and Afghanistan, like they probably have spiritual gifts, and and I don't know, maybe pastors, but, but the thought is, well, just the rest of us kind of normal Christians, man, our, our job is just to kind of show up and, and watch the spiritual stars on the stage. And that, that's kind of our role is to be spectators in God's kingdom. And I just wanna say, I think that that ideology of the church has actually crippled the church in America the last few decades. And here's why, the, the church was never designed by God to operate this way. With just a handful of spiritually elite, gifted people on stage and everybody else basically just sitting out there as spectators. I say this in all of our, our, our Journey 101 classes that we host for, for new people here at New Life. I, I say this all the time because I, I really believe that it's true. New Life will, listen, New Life will never be, never be, all that God intended for her to be because I preach really well on Sundays. Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, I don't hit a home run every Sunday. In fact, most Sundays I don't hit a home run. Like our church is never gonna be what God designed for us to be collectively because we have the best worship team in town, as great as they are. We're never gonna be who God wants us to be just because we've got the best kids program or youth ministries or the best coffee in our lobby or whatever it is. New life will only ever become what God wants us to become when every single one of us realizes that we've been uniquely gifted by God and we each have a huge role to play in the story that he's writing. In his church, in the world, all of us together, as a team, as a family. Many parts, one mission. Now, Peter kind of breaks down these, these spiritual gifts into two broad categories. He, he kind of talks about them in terms of speaking gifts and service gifts. You actually can find much more detailed list of these spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, other places like that. But Paul, in essence, or Peter, in essence, is just saying, hey, look, if, you, if you've got a speaking gift, like preaching or, or teaching, he says, do it as one who speaks the oracles of God. And like that word oracle literally means the word of God. Do it, do it as someone who, who speaks the, the words of God, the oracles of God. In other words, I think he, he's saying, don't listen, don't use your stage, don't use a Bible study or a small group to, to just kind of push your agenda 
or, or to push your personal opinions or to show off how talented you are, or how much knowledge you have. He says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Speak God's word to people. That's what breathes life into people. That's what people need. We don't need your opinion. You don't need my opinion. You need the, the words, the oracles of God himself. And that is why I pray to God you never, ever come to New Life or watch online. Yeah, I pray you never hear a sermon or you never go to a Bible study and not hear the words, open your Bible. Now, why is that? Because we wanna speak the oracles, the very word of God, not the, not the opinions of man here. And so Peter's saying, listen, if you're, if you're gifted in that way, God has given you a, a speaking gift, you're comfortable in front of crowds, you can articulate things very clearly in small group or around people. If you have that, great. You, don't sit on it. <laughs> you Use that gift to build up the body of Christ. And in the same way, if you're gifted with a service gift, serve others well with that gift. Man, man I thank God for people who have the gift of administration. I praise God for people who have the gift of, of faith and the gift of mercy and the gift of service and giving and all these other gifts. Man, how horrible would a church be if all you had was a bunch of teachers and preachers just running around yapping all the time. And it would, be, it would be horrible, right? We'd be a disorganized, chaotic mess of a church. Thank God for the varied gifts that God gives the body. Some with speaking gifts, others with service gifts. One is not better than the other. We need one another desperately to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. So believer, find your spiritual gift, Peter is saying, and then use it, right? That, that's number four. That's the fourth step to live a beautiful life in light of the second coming of Jesus, in light of the end, number four, Christian, very simply, use your gifts. Don't, don't sit on them. If you're a follower of Jesus, listen, if, you are, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you love him and you are not actively, consistently, intentionally, purposefully using your gifts inside the body of Christ, listen, not only are you robbing yourself, really of, of your purpose in this world, you're, you're actually robbing the rest of us of something that only you bring to our church family. So, so let me say this with a, a, lot of, a lot of love in my heart. Stop robbing us. <laughs> if you're a part of this faith family, you, you love Jesus and you're not using your gifts in this body, please stop robbing us. Stop shortchanging us. Stop robbing yourself. Use your gift. Now if you're out there and you're like, Chris, man, I've been following Jesus for like five years, 10 for 20 years, I don't even know what my gift is. Well, there, there's, a, there's a couple of ways that you can begin that process of discovering your gift. We have a nice little spiritual inventory test here that our, our Connections pastor, Jonathan Jones, uses in our Journey 201 membership class. All right, so listen, by the way, just kind of shameless plug, if you've been at New Life for a long time, you consider this your church home, you haven't become a member, I would encourage you, sign up for our next membership class, Journey 201, you can find it on our website, think November's the next one, you'll get that spiritual inventory test or assessment in that class. But even if you're not taking that class, I, I bet you, if you're really nice to Jonathan, he loves coffee, just bring him like a pound of some really nice coffee, I bet you, even if you don't go to the Journey 201 class, that he would hook you up with our spiritual inventory test so that you could begin to discover where God has gifted you and you could begin to serve in those different areas in our church body. But I'll tell you, I think an even better way, an even more effective way to discover what your spiritual gift is, is just to start serving in different ways. 
You, you, I promise you, you will eventually find your sweet spot. Like for Cheryl and I, uh, we got married, went to seminary. Kind of our, our first place of service was preschool ministry. So in school, two and a half years, that was our ministry. And it was great. We loved it. And we tried different things. I did overseas missions and led mission stuff here, discipleship stuff here. And now I'm teaching. So I, I'm, I say all that to say, just try different things. Serve in different areas until there's something that clicks in your heart. And you're like, man, I just... Like I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about kids or I'm passionate about teens or I'm passionate about overseas mission trips or discipleship or small group ministry. I mean, there's a million different things that you could do to serve in our church and in God's kingdom. But just find your place because Peter's saying, listen, the end is near. Serve one another with your spiritual gifts. He's saying, don't sit on the sidelines. You're not a spectator in this game. Don't just, don't just attend a, a worship gathering either online or in person. Get involved. If you love Jesus, you got a part to play in his kingdom. The bottom line is we need you. We need you. Stop, stop robbing us. And why do we live this beautiful life with the end, um, the return of Jesus always in the front of our minds? Why, why is it so important for us to do these four things in our lives? Well, he tells us right at the end of the passage Peter says, this is why, in order that, he says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's why. That everything in our lives would bring honor and glory to God our Father through Jesus Christ. And he, fish, he really finishes with kind of a doxology. He says, it's almost like Peter's just so excited, this just kinda, kinda bursts forth from his heart. Right? He couldn't help himself. He says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And that's why we live this way, church family. That's why we pursue this beautiful life. That's why we do these four things. Not, not, to, not to puff ourselves up, <laughs> not, not to say to those around us, look at me, look how awesome I am, look how awesome my prayer life is, look how hospitable I am and how many people I have in my home and look how I love, each, love other people so well or look how I use my spiritual gifts in the church body. No, we, we don't do it to point attention to ourselves. We do this, as Peter says, to bring honor to God because we have a king who is worthy of our lives. And as we see the day drawing near, all the more we seek to live lives that are pleasing and worthy of the one who has redeemed our broken lives and set us free. As we close, I, I just I wanna read a passage really quickly from the book of Revelation about the second coming of Jesus, what that will look like. I think sometimes even as believers, we, don't, we really don't look forward to the end of this age like we should. We really don't look forward to the second coming of Jesus like we should because I, I think some of us feel like we're gonna miss out on something, but nothing could be further from the truth. So I just listen really quickly and then we'll pray. This is the Apostle John writing in Revelation 21. He's describing what the, the end of this age is gonna be like, what the establishment of the king, coming kingdom of Jesus is gonna look like. This is a beautiful picture. Revelation chapter 21, this is how John describes what it's gonna be like. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's gonna be this, this new, this brand new, awesome, incredible city like none of us have ever seen. It's more than you could ever hope for or imagine. You can see this new city, this holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, he says, from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself 
will be with them as their God. Could you imagine being in a city where God is physically there, present with us forever? How incredible is that going to be? Verse 4, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's going to be this glorious kingdom where everything that has gone wrong, every evil is undone, everything that has been wrong will be made right, every tear will be wiped away forever and ever and ever. It's going to be glorious. And John is saying this is going to be the feast that ends all feasts, this is going to be the party to end all parties, and we are finally going to be face to face with the one that we love most. And if you're tuned in right now and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, I just want you to know God is, God is calling you. God is inviting you into his kingdom. I want you to know he loves you. He wants you at this final feast. He wants you at this forever party. And so if that's you, I would just say for you, maybe today is that day where you step into God's kingdom and you say, yes, I'm tired of living life for myself. I wanna, I wanna live for God in his kingdom and I wanna be a part of this coming kingdom of Jesus and this glorious ending and it's gonna be incredible. I, I, just, I wanna be a part of this movement. And if that's you, then reach out to us. Let us know. We'd be happy to walk you through what that process of beginning that relationship with God looks like. Now, Christian, let me just say to you, man, our, our future is glorious. Our future is so glorious and so let's live out the rest of our lives no matter how long we have, let's live out the rest of our lives in light of what's just around the bend for us, for the glory of our King. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a hope in the future, God. We don't have to wonder about what's next for us. No matter how hard this life gets, no matter how things seem to be spiraling out of control around us, God, our future is so secure and it's so glorious, so beautiful. God, would you help our hearts long for that day? Would you help us yearn for the return of Jesus to make all things right, to undo all wrongs and injustices in this world? We ask, Father, that that day would be soon we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that glorious day, God, would you help us to live a beautiful life? As Peter said, a life that's marked by prayer, a life that's just dripping with love for one another, hospitality of having people in our homes and serving one another, serving the body of Christ by using our spiritual gifts in the church. God, would you help us to live these distinctly beautiful lives, all for your glory. And we ask all of this in the beautiful name of your son, our savior, Jesus. Amen.